The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. All right, so last summer, uh, Emily's family uh, came down, Emily's my wife, her family came down from Illinois to spend a week at Lake Kiwi. Right, this is a, something that we do every other summer. It's become kind of a new tradition. We go to this, this house on Lake Kiwi and we just go enjoy the lake together. We don't get to see that bit of Emily's family all that much, so it's always a blast to be together. And I have this really specific haunting memory from one of the days that we were swimming in the lake. Emily, you, you have no idea you don't remember this because it, it's, it's totally a non-issue. But I was floating with, with Emily's brother, Davey. He and I were kind of, we had on our life jackets and we were just floating, just enjoying the water. And Davey said to me, Trevor, what's it like, you know? It's like, what's what like? It's like, what's it like, you know? Thinning out up here. Like, what's it like? I, I can see like the way that the water has kind of landed on your head. I could see that you're starting to get kind of, <laughs> kind of thin up here. What's that like? It's like, I'm starting to get thin too. I mean, it's, we're, we're going to rock the bald thing together. I was like, Davey, how dare you <laughs> draw attention? To, I mean, the reality is that the truth of what had been happening for some time had been exposed in that moment. The water had landed on me just right, and you could see that, I mean, my hair isn't just receding. It's like retreating. It's a full, <laughs> it's a full on mutiny in certain parts of my forehead right here. And Davey draws attention to, that, to, to my, you know, loss of hair. Also, a couple of weeks ago, gosh, this thick, luscious, black head of hair that stands before you. Just enjoy it while you can, friends, because it won't be around for much longer. Now, a few weeks ago, I shared the story with some folks this morning. A few weeks ago, I was at the uh, eye doctor. It's, I've gone to the eye doctor, I can count on one hand as many times as I've gone to the eye doctor in my whole life. I've always had impeccable vision. I always joke about how great my vision is um, and, and how I've never had issues seeing ever and I don't, I don't intend to have any issues with seeing. Uh, I go to the eye doctor because you can go to the eye doctor and submit the results to the DMV and I would rather do that than go to the DMV. Go to the eye doctor and this is exactly what she said at the conclusion of the visit. She said exactly this. Well, Mr. Hoffman, Mr. Hoffman, like is a Mr. Hoffman, Signs of age are beginning to show in the muscles that surround your eyes. You'll need to be thinking about getting reading glasses in the next five to ten years. She had the audacity <laughs> to tell me that I was going to, and I can, I can see my notes just fine from here, I assure you. What this reminds me of is one dreadful thing, and it's true of all of us. Our impermanence. There's coming a day when I am going to die. And the same is true of you. There's coming a day when you will expire. We're born, we come up, we think of ourselves as these permanent fixtures of things. We're told the world doesn't revolve around us and we think that might be true, but surely the world is not going to revolve without us. But the reality is each of us will die. As we age and our bodies break down, as the people that we love die, the reality of things set in, all of us die inevitably. All people, everywhere, in every circumstance, will one day succumb to death. And so this becomes a really important universal question for every soul. What ought the knowledge of our death do for us? What ought the knowledge of our death do for us? 
Now our church has been studying the book of Ecclesiastes for the last several months. And Ecclesiastes was written by a character we've been calling the preacher. Ecclesiastes is, a, is one of the, the, the bits of wisdom literature in the Old Testament and it's a reflection on life that really challenges us. It challenges our ambitions and our pride. It challenges the things that we spend our money and our time on. It challenges our very sense of permanence. The preacher really wants to unsettle us with the inevitability of death. An anchor metaphor all throughout the book that he is referred to again and again and again is that he says everything is hevel. This Hebrew word, hevel. It's translated sometimes meaningless or vain. It's probably best understood as something like fog, mist, or vapor. He says, everything is vapor. Our lives and our hairlines and the muscles around our eyes are as permanent and substantial as wisps of smoke. This is not the first time that he's prodded us with this question. In fact, just two chapters ago in chapter 7, he said, it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. That the day of death is better than the day of birth. He wants to challenge us with the reality of our death to confront us, maybe even a little depressingly so, with the fact that we're going to die and he wants to draw something out of us. So how are we to respond? How ought we think about our own death? Today in chapter 9, the preacher makes two main observations about life and death, followed by one single but familiar exhortation. And let me say, um, I have this on the screen. This book has been really helpful for me as I've studied through Ecclesiastes. It's a book called Living Life Backward by a Scottish dude named David Gibson. It's a really, really helpful book. So if you want to read more on Ecclesiastes, I heartily recommend this book to you. It's really good. And in fact, his chapter was so helpful that I, I, I'm taking his outline of, this, of what he sees here. He sees two observations and one exhortation, and I'm totally lifting it from David Gibson. So all credit goes to him. Observation number one, you ready? Life is unpredictable. Life is unpredictable. Let's look at verse 11. We'll start halfway through the chapter. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Life is unpredictable. Uh, racing is not my thing, but my grandfather, every Sunday, was always watching NASCAR. It's like watching slash sleeping with NASCAR on TV. I, I remember my grandfather being all about it. And it's like, watching the race, it's not the Dale Earnhardts of the world who win in life, is what he says. Or the Jeff Cordons, or I just hit the, my limits of knowledge of NASCAR there. Or it's like watching March Madness. It's not the strong one seed who wins out, it's the St. Peter's of the world. The Cinderella's. It's not the battle that goes to the strong. Life is unpredictable in this way. And a group one person said, it's kind of like the the person who smokes a pack a day living 100 years. It's like it doesn't doesn't make sense. Life is unpredictable in that way. He says the wise don't get the bread. Riches don't go to the smart. All these things we think are indicators of success aren't because life is unpredictable. It can often feel like it's crapshoot. He says time and chance happen to all of us. Last Sunday in chapter 8, we talked about the fogginess of life and how this metaphor of everything being a vapor also sort of implies an inscrutability to the world. It's like we we can't, in in the same way that we can't see through vapor, we can't see through fog, the world is kind of foggy. Things just happen that don't make sense, that we can't predict, and that we'll never be able to wrap our brains around. Things happen, and the Lord does things, and we just cannot make heads or tails of it. 
think a great example of this is, again, I was hanging out with Emily's family for a birthday celebration this weekend. And maybe you've had a, a similar situation. You get with family and you start talking about people maybe from high school or people you used to go to church with. They'll say, remember this name? Uh, whatever happened to that guy? Oh, yeah, he, he, he's in our hometown. I was at the grocery store in our hometown not that long ago. And I saw him, and he's got a couple of kids. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's doing pretty good. Did you hear about what happened to this guy? You'll never believe. This guy, and this is literally what Emily's family said, this particular guy that went to Southside Christian School that's kind of connected with Emily's family is now a, a producer for like Frank Ocean and other rappers. It's like, I don't know. That was surprising to me. I don't, I don't the, the fact that this guy kind of from our little area, our little slice of the world, kind of in our circles ends up being this big time producer who's like living in Los Angeles. Life is like that sometimes. Sometimes the things that you expect aren't the outcomes that actually happen. Sometimes nerdy little dudes become producers for rap stars. I was reading this, this week about an investor and author, a guy who's, who's not a believer. His name is Nassim Tlaib. He's written an entire book called Fooled by Randomness. The book's subtitle is The Hidden Role of Chance in Life in the Marketplace. He's an investor and he writes a lot on investing. And his whole deal is that we spend a ton of time and publish tons of books dissecting the things that made people like Steve Jobs successful when the reality is it's luck. It's luck. Time and chance happen to all of us. Hard work and skill and turtlenecks are important, absolutely. But time and chance happen to all of us. There's just no predicting when or why lightning strikes. And the preacher says life is just that way sometimes. Life is unpredictable. It twists and turns in ways we just cannot anticipate. Verse 12. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when, suddenly fall, when it suddenly falls upon them. Not only is life unpredictable, but the arrival of our death is unpredictable. He uses the imagery of like a fish being taken up by a net or a bird being caught in a snare. So it is with our death. It's like, have you ever noticed that every experience of death is always, always gutting and surprising? Even deaths that we expect. An aging grandparent or aging parent, it still hits us in a way that's surprising. Life is unpredictable and death sneaks up on us. Our first Sunday in Ecclesiastes, I mentioned that the word hevel is actually used in the Old Testament as a proper noun, that there's a character in the Bible whose name is hevel. Do you remember that? Who's the character? Abel. What's the story of Abel? Abel is the younger brother whose young life is unjustly cut short in what seemed like the prime of his life by an angry, raging, jealous older brother. And the preacher says, life is like that. Life is unpredictable like that. Death sneaks up on us like that. Then verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is, is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise, heard and quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Now again, much like last week, life is unpredictable, but wisdom is an advantage. He gives this parable of a besieged city and he says the city is delivered by the, the wisdom of a poor man, yet the poor man was forgotten. 
Wisdom is thankless. It often goes unnoticed. And so the preacher wants to sort of head off a misapplication, a way that we might misunderstand his words. We might be tempted to think that life is unpredictable, therefore, why do anything? Why care about anything? Why not just give ourselves over to the chaos and unpredictability of life? He says, no, that, that's not, like, wisdom is still an advantage. Though life is unpredictable, and though wisdom is often thankless, it is still an advantage. This is a similar message that he gave us a couple of weeks ago. We don't abandon its pursuit, run hard after wisdom and righteousness, still. But he wants us to make no mistakes. And this is our first observation, that life is unpredictable. And here's our second observation. Death is inevitable. Let's look up at verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it at all. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. The same event. We don't know what kind of life the Lord has for us, nor its span. Other scriptures tell us the Lord has counted our days. He knows precisely how long we'll be around. He knows our deeds, our breaths, the number of heartbeats, our very lives are in God's hand. It's worth noting here that, again, a takeaway might be from the previous section to conclude that life is chaotic and random and that there's no rhyme or reason. But the preacher has a really thick understanding of God's sovereignty. Like, even as much as we might experience things as chaotic and random, the Lord is sovereign behind all of it. And he says really strongly here, like, our, 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 uh, the righteous and the wise, their deeds are in the hand of God. The end of verse 1 is kind of difficult to understand. He, he says, whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. He probably means God's favor or disfavor. We don't, in other words, we don't know what kind of life that the Lord has in store for us. But regardless, regardless of our behavior, regardless of our relationship to God, one thing is for sure for each of us. Death. The righteous, the wicked, the good, the evil, the clean, the unclean, what do they have in common? Every one of them die. Strong or weak, rich or poor, young or old, they all die. Kim, Kanye, Elon, Bezos, Biden, Putin, you, me, all of us, the same event happens to every person. Book of poetry and, and prophecy written 800 years before Jesus by the prophet Isaiah, he describes death as this dark covering, like a thick velvety blanket that's been cast over all people, that's covering all peoples. All humans everywhere are forced to reckon with the reality of death. All of human life is just dealing with death, how to delay it, how to mitigate its effects, how to stave it off and live in light of it. All people die. Think about for all of our diversity and complexity and variety, of all human cultures ever, of all the recipes that we've whipped up from every corner of the earth, of all the different uh, shades of skin color, of all the, the, uh, the beauty and diversity of human life, one thing that we have in common is every one of us has to figure out what we're going to do about death. The same event 
happens to all. Let's look at the second half of verse 3. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. Now, we said last week that uh, Ecclesiastes is sort of like the cynic, the, the, the middle-aged cynic, kind of offering his reflections, and this is a little bit of a cynical take on human nature. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. If you've been around long enough, you actually feel like this is a pretty apt summary of the way that humans behave. Our hearts are twisted and corrupt like a madness has gripped us while we live. Verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. The preacher's observing the elimination, as one commentator said, the elimination and extinction of all possibility and potential. The concrete is no longer wet. When the dead die, life is over for them and their memory fades away. Now it's worth mentioning here that the preacher, and for saints in the Old Testament, the afterlife is very much veiled for them. Like we, we read this and there's a lot of New Testament scriptures that come to mind about death, like rightfully, as they should. But we have to remember that the preacher is writing, and he, he doesn't yet have the full disclosure of the whole story like you and I have it. For him, the afterlife is still very much a veiled place. The dead are all in the place of the dead, often referred to as Sheol. The preacher has some notion of the afterlife, but again, he doesn't have the clarity that you and I have the advantage of, of having received from the teaching of the New Testament. His point here is that when your heart stops, your life stops, and that's the story for you. Your memory fades, and you will be forgotten. One life to live will soon be passed. Life is unpredictable, and death is inevitable. Now, I'd guess that there are at least two responses to what has been said thus far. I would guess. I would guess that the first response is to be totally freaked out about the unpredictability of what tomorrow holds. Like, think about this, friends. There is nothing you can do to ensure a safe, happy, comfortable tomorrow. Life is unpredictable in that way. At, at a moment's notice, everything could change, and we know that. I don't have to tell you that. It freaks us out constantly. We recognize that our lifespans are not in our hands and that at any moment, everything could be upended, and this petrifies us. There's no assurance. No matter how much we plan, no matter how much we prepare, there's no prepping that prevents the inevitability of death and the unpredictability of life. One response is to, to just be freaked out by this. I would imagine for others of us, another response that we have is we, we carry a lot of regret about yesterday. We recognize that our impermanence I mean, our, our, our impermanence and the fact that our, our moments are expiring, even as we sit here, it reminds us of all of those wasted moments in our past, all of those wasted opportunities. We think about how late we came to the faith. We think about that friendship that we spoiled with our selfishness. We think about the relationship that we broke. We think about those things that we have done wrong, and we are weighed down by our guilt. Our wasted words, our missed opportunities, time is slipping away. What I should have done with a fuller head of hair, Right? But there's hope. Look at verse 4. 
But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. How good is that? Like lions in scripture. Like there's a reason lions are what they are. They're Mufasas, right? They're, they're regal. They're powerful. They're strong. They're beautiful. They're mighty. They're Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. Lions. But a dead lion is, is nothing. A dead lion is, is vulture food. It says a dog, and we know how the scriptures talk about dogs. They're creatures of filth associated with death. It's a term of contempt, right? He says a living dog at least has this advantage, that he is alive. And so the question for us, even as we think about the reality of our death, are we breathing? Are we here? Is there a present tense for us? We have a finite amount of time to live, so let that motivate us. Here's how you and I can respond. The preacher's exhortation for us. The wise respond by enjoying the gifts God has given today. Verse seven. The preacher writes, go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vaporous life that he has given you under the sun. Toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. The world is filled with nearly limitless, unreal joys, cooked up, invented, and given to us by God. And the preacher says, while you have breath, living dogs, have at it. Enjoy the things that the Lord has given you. Eat bread with joy and drink wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. White garments are garments for celebrating. Oil is for anointing. He's saying, may you live always like you're headed to a wedding. May you live always like you're headed to a wedding. And enjoy the life with the wife whom you love. If you've been given a spouse, enjoy your spouse. There's no room for prudery in the Christian faith. Enjoy the gifts that the Lord has given us. Love the people you're around. Love the people the Lord has given you for the present tense moment that he's given you them. Whatever your hand finds to do, a mechanic, a teacher, stay-at-home mom, a carpenter, a pastor, do it with all of your might. Live with all of our might while we do live. Let's go to bed tired, spending ourselves on doing good, on learning to be good at something, enjoying the life that the Lord has given us today. Because there's nothing we can do about yesterday, and there's nothing we can do about tomorrow. Now, what the preacher's saying here is not a kind of frat boy, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of response. No, this is an understanding that life is gift, not gain. Let us practice receiving these gifts that God has given us, receiving these blessings and embracing them from the hand of a sovereign, good God. Do you struggle to live in the present because you, you find yourself just wrapped up in nostalgia? The good old days. What's crazy to think about is we will be nostalgic about today, eventually, right? So let's learn to be nostalgic now, in the present, being deeply attentive to the moments that the Lord gives us. Do you suffer from guilt? I mean, I have, I have a, there was a, a guy in my life that was so influential in so many good ways, a dude that I loved dearly, and I ruined the relationship. I sinned against him in ways that we could not recover from, and it grieves me. It grieves me so much, and I miss this friend. 
But a living dog is better than a dead lion. Mistakes have a tendency to just chew us up, but we have to press forward and we have to recognize the Lord has given us today to to not make those same mistakes, to keep pressing forward. We have the present to receive, to enjoy, to labor within. Do you struggle to live in the present for dread of what tomorrow holds for you? I think of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter six. It's like, today is, is full of stuff to worry about. Spend your time focusing on today. Let tomorrow take care of itself. See the birds and the lilies? Does not the Lord care for them? How how much more value are you than these? Surely your Father will care for you. Let's be present today and trust that the Lord will address tomorrow. Do you struggle to live in the present because you don't like the present? Because you think tomorrow will be better if this only happens, then, then I can be present. Elizabeth Elliot, a saint, had this to say about being present. She said, the life of faith is lived one day at a time, and it has to be lived. Not always look forward to as though the real living were around the next corner. It is today for which we are responsible. God still owns tomorrow. Life is unpredictable, and death is inevitable. And we know that in our bones. The wise respond by receiving what the Lord has given us today. My favorite part in this whole section is this little comment in verse 7. Go eat and drink, for God has already approved of what you do. Do you know the approval of God? What if you could have that? What if you could have a kind of forever yes, a forever smile of God directed towards you? Not an approval that works itself out into bad things never happening to us, but an approval that looks like this. This comes from Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eat, drink, and be merry, because in Christ, God is approved of all that you do. He looks on you with the love and favor that he has for his son applied to us. Christians are people who believe in Jesus and we're united to Jesus by his Holy Spirit when we place faith in Christ. And listen to this. What that means is that everything that belongs to Jesus becomes ours. His name is our name. His father is our father. His righteousness is our righteousness. And listen, his death is our death. His resurrected, indestructible, forever life is our resurrected, indestructible, forever life. And so that gives us a hope 
that can stare death in the face and can do it with boldness and courage because we have been given a hope for life after death in Jesus. Maybe you're here tonight and you've believed that for years. Maybe you're here and you've, you've never considered what it actually meant to believe on Christ. You're not sure about the faith. You're not sure what it even means to believe on Christ. And I'm going to ask you after worship to just come find me. And I, I will, we will go to Waffle House tonight and we will talk about this. We'll look at the Bible. We will talk about this tonight. I will bless you with a waffle tonight and we'll discuss this. And what I love was that the preacher was even more right than he knew. He was even more right than he knew. When he told us to enjoy the good gifts of God and confidence that God will handle tomorrow, he was more right than he knew because for the Christian, listen, eternity is ever white garments, it is oil-soaked heads, it is bread and wine forever, Christian. So how much more are we unleashed to enjoy these gifts in the present, knowing that though death is inevitable, death's death is more sure. This is the hope that we have because of the grace of the Lord Jesus. Each week we provide some questions for reflection in our bulletin. And as we come to a conclusion of our teaching time, we always say, just for us to take a moment to look at those questions of reflection and just kind of consider the things that have been said. Again, after worship, I'll I'll be hanging out at this door back here. I would love to talk any more with any of you about any of these things. Um, uh, Our other pastors, our group leaders are around. We'd love to chat if you'd be interested in learning more. Let's pray.